0: Welcome to the Talking Leaves Podcast. I'm your host, Miss Kyra, and we are returning today for episode six of our mini-series about Homer's The Odyssey. In the last five episodes, we closely read book one and looked into Homer setting the stage of everything that takes place before we fully join Odysseus himself in his reliving of his 10-year journey home. In this episode, we will look at the last few pages of book one, These are the pages in which Telemachus follows the gray-eyed goddess's advice to warn off the suitors, call an assembly of the islanders to tell them his desire for the suitors to leave with the gods as witness, and, finally, Telemachus' plans to set sail for Pylos and Sparta to seek out word of his father. Let's dig in. On page 12, around line 416, we've just witnessed Athena cast a sweet sleep over Penelope's eyes, presumably to give Penelope some respite, some escape from her suffering and sobbing over missing her husband, over the situation she finds herself in. From there, we zoom back to Telemachus and see how he follows his new friends, Mentes slash Athena's, advice and turns towards the suitors. You suitors of my mother, insolent men now we have dined let us have entertainment and no more shouting there can be no pleasure so fair as giving heed to a great minstrel like ours whose voice itself is pure delight at daybreak we shall sit down in assembly and i shall tell you take it as you will you are to leave this hall go feasting elsewhere consume your own stores turn and turn about use one another's houses if you choose to slaughter one man's livestock and pay nothing this is rapine and by the eternal gods, I beg Zeus, you shall get what you deserve, a slaughter here, and nothing paid for it. Here, Telemachus uses the courage Athena gave him to tell the suitors their fate. They may either leave tomorrow, after Telemachus tells the whole island at the assembly that they must leave, or, if they do not do so, they will pay in their death. They will be slaughtered with the gods as witness for paying nothing for what they have taken. He calls them insolent, which means boldly, disrespectful, and rude. He tells them to shut up and appreciate the entertainment while they have it. Then he tells them to take it how they will, but they must leave and go feasting elsewhere. They need to leave and eat their own food and go to each other's houses instead of continuing to live off of Telemachus and Penelopes and by extension Odysseus's wealth. He also reminds them of what they've taken so far, another man's hard work, another man's livestock, another man's home. And they've done so far past what the custom of Xenia allows, and they've paid nothing for it, which he calls rapine, which means pillage or plunder. Essentially, they have invaded his home and stolen from him, like soldiers do during wartime. After this speech, the suitors stood stunned with their teeth seemed fixed in their under lips. Which, what does that mean? It seems to me like Homer could be saying a few things. They were biting their lips, so maybe they're holding in their laughter. They're so shocked that Telemachus, this daydreaming boy, finally stood up to them. Or are they biting their cheeks in shock? It stunned them, so they slammed their teeth down. We're not really sure. Take that how you will. One suitor awakens from his shock, Antinous, and he replies to Telemachus. Telemachus, no doubt the gods themselves are teaching you this high and mighty manner. Zeus forbid you should be king in Ithaca, though you are eligible as your father's son. Here, Antonius is saying he doesn't like how Telemachus thinks himself superior to the suitors, and he thinks the gods have put this superiority into him. Further, Antonius hopes that Telemachus himself doesn't become king. According to our translator Robert Fitzgerald, at this time period in Greek history, the rulership of most Greek city-states, like Ithaca was, would not automatically pa- be passed out from father to son. So Telemachus had to earn the kingship. He was eligible, of course. Don't get that wrong. But it wasn't automatic. It was decided by the gods, as we hear in the next lines from Telemachus. Antinous, you may not like my answer, but I would happily be king if Zeus conferred the prize. Or do you think it wretched? I shouldn't call it bad at all. A king will be respected, and his house will flourish. But there are many eligible men... Heaven knows, on the island, young and old, and one of them, perhaps, may come to power after the death of King Odysseus. All I insist on is that I rule our house and rule the slaves my father won for me." Telemachus explains that he would be king if called upon by Zeus to do so. And even though the suitors may think it's horrible, wretched, Telemachus would be king and he would be respected, so his house would flourish. Though Telemachus recognizes there are many other eligible men who could be designated king on the island, who could be made king after Odysseus' death, but no matter what, Telemachus says, I will have control over my own house and the slaves my father took for me. This means, even if not king, this house, this manor, is Telemachus's, not anyone else's. So no matter, the suitors need to leave his house. Another suitor, Eurymachus, pipes up now. He tells Telemachus, it is on the gods' great knees who will be next king in Seagirt, Ithaca, which means, Ithaca's an island, Seagirt is just a phrase to describe that a place is surrounded by water, it's skirted by water. They know it is up to the gods who will be king next. But Eurymachus is more concerned with who that guest was. But now, a question or two about the stranger. Where did your guest come from? Of what country? Where does he say his home is? And his family? Has he some message of your father's coming or business of his own, asking a favor? He left so quickly that one hadn't time to meet him, but he seemed a gentleman. Here we see Telemachus is not the only one with questions about this guest. So, just like anyone would be, they were curious of any stranger, but their custom of Xenia demands that they meet the needs of the guests before inquiring about who they are and why they're here. We would all ask these questions, but Eurymachus seems to catch on to the strangeness of the guest visit. He, the guest, only stuck around long enough to eat and talk to Telemachus. No one else met him. That strikes Eurymachus as odd. And his questions show they haven't forgotten about Odysseus. Maybe this guest brought word of Odysseus, word that could impact the suitors, positively or negatively. In reply, Telemachus answered calmly and coolly, Euromachus, there's no hope for my father. I would not trust a message if one came, nor any forecast my mother invites to tell by divination of time to come. My guest, however, was a family friend, Mentis, son of Achylos. He rules the Taffian people of the sea. In other words, Telemachus seems to think that Odysseus is dead, that nothing could change his mind about this. His guest was Mentes, a family friend. At least, that's what Telemachus says. But in his heart, he knew his visitor had been immortal. Telemachus knows that his guest was a god or a goddess. Therefore, everything he just said is suspect. He didn't tell the suitors that he had a god visiting him. He's lying to the suitors. He probably does have hope that his father is alive. A god just told him to go search for word of his dad. He needs to follow the guest and the god's advice to seek word of his father himself. And he doesn't want to tell the suitors any of his business. Regardless of the suspiciousness of Telemachus' answer, of the suspiciousness of the guest's exit, the suitors turned to play again with dance and haunting song. They thought nothing more of the strange guest or of Telemachus' sudden courage They went back to their own pleasure and at nightfall they left half asleep for their own homes we see telemachus head to his own bedroom in a kind of tower with a view all around which is a strategic and king-like place if i do say so myself and he ponders in silence with brands of pine alight beside him sitting in this dark tower with lights on with torches on around him very tense and moody here eurycleia sage wise and old, came padding and walking through. We learned that Eurycleia was purchased by Laertes, Odysseus's dad, when she was a blossoming girl, which is an interesting depiction. She was becoming a woman and we learned that Laertes liked her a lot, and paid the price of 20 oxen for her, and kept her as kindly in his house as his own wife, though, for the sake of peace, he never touched her." Again, interesting what the storyteller feels the need to tell us about this slave. Laertes could've taken advantage of her, but for the sake of peace at home, he didn't. That's nice. And as a result of being treated so well, note the sarcasm, she was still a slave. She looked after Telemachus and loved him. She nursed him as a baby. She takes care of him still, even in his moody teenage years. She takes the shirt he tosses at her, folds it, smooths it, and hangs it beside his bed on a bar. And then she draws the door closed and walks away. And all night long, wrapped in the finest fleece, Telemachus took in thought the course Athena gave him. He stayed awake all night, thinking of what the god guessed, Athena, had told him. He knows there is hope. He didn't dismiss the advice or hope or courage that the goddess gave him. With this dramatic scene of a prince sitting in the dark of his tower preparing for an upcoming journey, we close book one. While there are 23 books in the Odyssey, we won't cover all of them in detail, What we won't read for the sake of continuity. I'm going to summarize, largely relying on my own notably brief reading of the text itself and from trusty spark notes in book two telemachus lives up to athena's tasks and calls an assembly and tells the islanders what's what the suitors must leave and as spark notes tells us a wise Ithacan elder praises telemachus for stepping into his father's shoes and calling the first assembly since odysseus's departure telemachus then gives an impassioned speech in which he grieves the loss of both his father and his father's home his mother's suitors the sons of ithacan elders have taken over he rebukes them for consuming his father's oxen and sheep as they pursue their courtship day in and day out when any decent man would simply go to penelope's father and ask him for her hand in marriage Antinous, a suitor we met earlier in Book 1, blames the stagnation of the suitors being there the whole time on Penelope, who he says seduces every suitor but will commit to none of them. Remember this is a pretty big claim to make against Penelope. The role of a woman was to remain faithful. There is nothing that she has done to make anyone question her. So he is really calling into question her character without any merit. He reminds the suitors of a ruse that she concocted to put off remarrying anyone. Penelope said she would choose a husband as soon as she finished weaving a burial shroud, a burial blanket, for her elderly father-in-law, Laertes, but each night she carefully undid the knitting that she had completed during the day, so the shroud would never be finished. If Penelope makes no decision, Antinous declares, then she should be sent back to her father so that her father can choose a new husband for her. However, Telemachus doesn't go along with this. He refuses to throw his mother out and calls upon the gods to punish the suitors. So maybe he isn't such a bad son after all. At that moment, there are birds fighting in the sky. The Greeks believed in bird signs and that these bird signs can be interpreted as signals from the gods. So someone interprets these eagles fighting in the sky as a sign from the gods of Odysseus' return and how the suitors will pay a price for taking something that wasn't theirs. If they don't leave, the soothsayer, the interpreter of the bird sign says they will die. The suitors don't agree with this foolishness and the meeting ends with no decision really made. In books 3 and 4, which we will also not read, Telemachus continues to follow Athena's advice and sails to Pylos, where his mentor, which is Athena in a new disguise, joins him. Mentor, or Athena, gives Telemachus the encouragement he needs to imp- approach Nestor, which is Pylos's king, and ask him about Odysseus. Nestor can't tell Telemachus much, but we do hear again the story of Agamemnon's death at his wife Clytemnestra's and her lover's Agasthos, hand and how Agamemnon's son, Orestes, restored honor by killing Agasthos, which serves as a message to Telemachus to be a hero like Orestes, and restore honor and make sure those who have taken that honor, aka the suitors, suffer for their disrespect. In Book 4, Telemachus heads to Sparta to see Menelaus and Helen, the whole reason for the start of the Trojan War in the first place. They happily greet Telemachus, who they recognize as Odysseus's son, because he clearly looks like Odysseus. As they all dine together, as they all feast, Menelaus and Helen tell about the many examples of Odysseus's cunning, his sharp and shrewd intelligence in war, his trickery at Troy. Helen recalls how Odysseus dressed as a beggar to infiltrate the city's walls. Menelaus tells of Odysseus's cunning with the Trojan horse. We see, and more importantly, Telemachus sees how great his father is, and how everyone else can see he is clearly Odysseus's, this great man's son. We've come to the end of our episode. We've reached the end of Book 1 and summarized the events of Books 2, 3, and 4. From here, we'll skip forward to reading Book 5, which is about the pretty-haired nymph we've heard a bit about from Athena before. The sea nymph who is keeping Odysseus on her island of Ogygia, who wants him for her own. The sea nymph, the daughter of Atlas, who is about to learn of the gods' decision to let Odysseus return home. Special thanks to these sources. Robert Fitzgerald's translation of Homer's The Odyssey, Sparknotes' summaries on The Odyssey.